0: Welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the enviously young, classically hip, and decisively lay editors of American media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Olga Segura.
1: Hey, guys. And Zach Davis. Bang, 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 bang chubap. Hey,
2: Ashley. Hey, Ashley. <laughs>
1: That's a new one. <laughs> that was good. That was from Greece. Ah. Oh. Oh. Oh, uh, that's, that's
2: the dance you were doing yeah, before? Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah, cool, cool, cool. What are we drinking, Zach?
2: So the bar is looking kind of weird. There's <laughs> a little bit of everything in there right now. And so we decided this was a week to kind of, you know, just everything but the kitchen sink. So yeah. we're uh, clean
0: out the summer supply. Mm-hmm. Yes. We'll restock it next week with some ciders and whatever. Other uh, fall uh, drinks. Other fall <laughs> drinks.
2: Um, so I'm pretty psyched. I uh, snagged myself a single can of Miller Lite. <laughs> Um, so i just going to, there we go. Nice,
0: And I have the dregs of our tequila Blanco, which
1: I'm mixing <laughs> with lemon juice and seltzer water. <laughs> and I've got the last Great Lakes Brewing Co. Holy Moses Raspberry White Ale.
2: And yeah, that was brought to us by, uh, Linda, our patron right, supporter, right, Linda right, Carey. Yeah. So thank you to all who have sent us drinks or had drinks with us this summer. This is to you. Cheers.
0: Cheers. Cheers. Good
1: stuff.
2: It tastes like Ohio.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Who are we talking to this week, Olga? Today we're chatting with Stephanie Saldana. She is a writer and author, most recently of A Country Between, making a home where both sides of Jerusalem collide. She's also the founder of this really great project called Mosaic Stories, where she seeks to preserve stories of various people she's met throughout the Middle East. And it's really, really cool.
0: Yeah, she's an amazing writer. She has this piece in Plough Quarterly that we've all read about these three priests in Syria that have been integral to her life and her faith.
2: And she also, years ago, had this piece in uh, the New York Times' Modern Love because she met her husband while he was a third-year novice in a monastery in Syria. So she's an amazing writer, and so we'll have links to her, her writing in our show notes, but she is super vulnerable with us in this interview, and it's it was really moving.
0: Yep. All right. But first, Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sip through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to.
2: What's up first, Ashley?
0: First, we have a quick update on the ongoing sex abuse crisis. So last week, Pope Francis announced that he was going to have a summit in February with all of the presidents of the bishops' conference worldwide. So over 100 bishops will gather at the Vatican in February to talk about the protection of minors and vulnerable adults. We don't have that many details at this point, but we will keep everyone updated.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, We a lot, one question a lot of people are asking is, are there gonna be any lay people there? short answers we don't know yet I think we all hope so yeah we'll here. keep you posted what's next Olga
1: so our next story is coming out of the Catholic Church in China where it's been reported that the Vatican and China will sign this landmark agreement at the end of this month and a lot of people have been talking about why this is so significant and Zach this is something that you've covered for a few years here at America
2: yeah right? I've been following it for a long time and right now the story is the Wall Street Journal reported that it's set to be signed later this month by the end of September and it also said it could still fall apart. And so depending on certain things that shake out, as you mentioned, Beijing would recognize Pope Francis as the head of China's Catholics. And in exchange, Pope Francis is going to recognize two bishops in China that were appointed without Vatican approval. And so this has been a long time in the making and it's happening sort of at a peculiar time in China, especially with regards to religious freedom.
0: There have been reports recently that Uyghur Muslim population has been subject to basically... Re-education camps. The Chinese government is putting them in camps to try to get rid of their Islamic faith. It's a troubling time for all religious minorities in China because this deal could happen, but the government has shown that they are capable and willing to suppress minority religions when they want to.
2: Yeah, and. it's interesting what the Vatican's move here is, because on the one hand, it's just straight up advocacy and sort of a rejection of any type of dialogue or deal could likely make life worse for both Catholics and Muslims in China.
0: Yeah. So, uh, But this deal has not been signed yet. No. So we will keep you guys updated again when, when, when it we happens. have more details. Yeah. What's next, Zach?
2: So our next story comes from Ashley and I's home diocese here, yeah, in, here, here in Brooklyn, where Bishop DiMarzio announced the beginnings of a new green housing project for elderly people. It's taking place in New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles. And this is a, a collaboration between faiths, so Catholics and Buddhists. And so it's taking the call of Laudato Si and Pope Francis' call to interreligious dialogue really seriously.
0: Yeah, no, that sounds like a really cool project. They're going to have senior living centers where there's affordable housing for seniors and then programming apparently the buddhist involvement is that they'll be providing kai chi do and yoga classes at these senior centers so it's a cool project and one that apparently pope francis has given the thumbs up to yeah
2: he's pretty excited about it reportedly so what's our next story ashley
0: Other cool things bishops are doing. Um, The 60-year-old Bishop Richard Moth of Arundel and Brighton in Great Britain raised money by going skydiving recently. He leads a pilgrimage to the Marian Shrine at Lourdes in France, and he thought he could get some donations by jumping out of a plane
1: and he did he did and the picture is fantastic you just see him he's so excited he has mm-hmm. both thumbs up and it's for a really great cause and it's really nice to see people getting creative in the ways that they're fundraising
2: yeah I think I'm, I'm trying to think of the church leaders in my life that I would pay to see skydiving and there are definitely a few Jesuits on staff in America <laughs> who I would I would offer up a hefty donation to get them uh, jumping out of a plane with yeah. a parachute <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry that was bad uh, let me restart that um <laughs>
1: What's next, Olga? (laughs) I'm sorry. It was so obvious that you clearly met with a (laughs) parachute. Okay. Uh, All right. All right. What's next, Olga? So this really cool initiative was founded by Elise Italiano. It's called the Given Institute. She founded it on September 12th. And it's this project that aims to help women grow in leadership roles, Catholic women grow in leadership roles. And it's going to offer leadership development, faith formation and mentorship of women to, quote, discover their unique gifts and pursue the lives God is calling them to lead. Yeah, no, it's a really cool project. They're going to have a national conference
0: every two or three years in which they match a younger woman um, with a more established Catholic professional woman to give them mentorship. So it's certainly something I would have mm-hmm. been interested in or am still interested I was just in. Saying, I don't think
2: you're <laughs> disqualified from it anymore. Okay. So
1: Yeah, no, it, it sounds amazing. So. All
2: right. Well, at least you, we have at least one person ready to sign up.
1: <laughs> What's next, Zach?
2: So, September 15th marked the beginning of Hispanic Heritage Month in the United States. And so, some quick facts about Hispanics in the U.S. Catholic Church. They make up 40% of all U.S. Catholics and 60% of Catholics under 18. So, a lot of times you'll hear people say the future of the Catholic Church in the United States is Hispanic. The young church is already majority Hispanic. And so, we thought this was a good opportunity to bring to your attention this new program from the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops called the Encuentro. It's the fifth Encuentro, which... In English means encounter. It's an initiative that seeks to better serve the growing Latin American community, happening right now and continuing through 2020.
0: It's a kind of complicated process. They meet over several years. They have different regional encuentros where they gather Catholics in a specific city. But this weekend, they're having the national conference in Grapevine, Texas. So over 3,000 Latino Catholics will be gathering there this weekend to talk about the fruits of the information and gathering that has been going on over the past couple of years and to come forward with proposals for how the church can better serve this growing population, not only serve this growing part of the u.s catholic church but put them in positions of leadership
2: right exactly they are the church right now and they have been and so now it's up to the church to make sure that they're represented
1: welcome to jesuitical stephanie thank you so much it's so great to be here yeah we're very very excited to have you so first question you and your husband met while he was a monk in a desert. Let's be clear, he was a novice <laughs> A novice, monk. correct. Okay, so he was a novice monk a, a ba- in a desert. A baby monk. A baby monk, for our <laughs> listeners. Um, and you didn't start to fall in love with him until you thought about becoming a nun. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about how you met and the roles your faith played?
3: I met my husband when I was on a Fulbright studying the Prophet Jesus Islam in Damascus, Syria. And... I had gone there in part to study Arabic, to study Islam, but also to go to a monastery called Dermar Musa, which is a monastery where Christian monks and nuns live together and take a vow to live in dialogue with Islam. So because I studied Islam, I was deeply drawn to this monastery, and I was very close to the founder, an Italian Jesuit named Paolo de L'Olio. So I went there. And in the course of my time, that was a very difficult time to be an American in Syria. The war in Iraq was happening. And finally, I fled to the desert and did the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius, the 30-day silent retreat there.
2: What are the spiritual exercises for some of our listeners who might not know?
3: The spiritual exercises are they can be done in daily life, they can be done over a longer period, but the sort of classic spiritual exercises are 30-day retreat in silence in which you meditate and you really... What's it, what characterizes them is you actually come to know Jesus in a deep way that stays with you for the rest of your life. You do this prayer in which you actually envision what's happening in the gospels and you even talk to characters and have them talk to you and one of the essential parts of the spiritual exercises is that you make a decision and during the spiritual exercises I made a decision to become a nun and afterwards I didn't feel very well and I returned to the monastery afterwards where there was a young French novice monk by the name of Frédéric. And I talked to him about what happened. And he said, you're not supposed to become a nun. And I said, (laughs) "Why, why are you saying that? I was totally offended. He was very direct in a French way. And he said, you don't believe in resurrection. And he was right. He was absolutely right. It was the most direct and harsh thing anybody had said to me, but he was right. Did he mean that literally? Like you didn't think that Jesus rose from the dead? It's hard to say in the monastic world what literal or not literal means. I think he means that I might have believed that in my mind, but if I wasn't living it, then I didn't really believe it. If I didn't really believe that there was life on the other side of death in the Middle East, especially that there's hope in the midst of the cross, then I didn't believe in resurrection. And if that was the case, then I was just running away by going to the monastery. And so in the monastery, especially in the Middle East, Christians say, you know, we try to be people of the resurrection, they often say. And so if you don't have that, I mean, forget about it. So this is very hard. And yet he was correct. And I went on a search to find the resurrection in the Middle East. And in the midst of that, much to my surprise, Frederick and I fell in love. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> And he said the, something that I will never forget. He said, I'm not escaping from one life to another. I love the monastery and I love you. So now I have to choose between love and love. Yeah. Wow. He always teases me now because when he left, I said, welcome to the monastery of the world. Our vocation, I think, is to try to say with all truth that we didn't choose a life that was less
0: what lessons can you give us from you and frederick's experience of making that discernment?
3: What I often find with with people is there's a lot of especially for for my generation there's a lot of anxiety about making wrong choices, you know that God wants me to do this and God wants me to do that, and I always say that's. God loves you, you know? God is not like that. God loves you, he's going to be with you whatever choice you make. And so I think that we have this wrong idea that there are only certain choices in life which are vocational choices. Like any life that's lived in love is a witness to the gospel. And I don't think we need to be afraid of of doing the wrong thing. I think we just need to live whatever we live with whatever depth we can.
2: So you're saying the first step was getting rid of f- fear of making the wrong choice.
3: Yes, and sometimes, you know, if we choose something that doesn't seem wrong, it I mean what <laughs> now I work a lot a lot with refugees and and of course refugees are always afraid because their lives are always changing. You know, maybe they won't get this permit and everything seems to be shutting down. And I always quote the, the sound of music. And I always say, whenever God closes a door, he opens a window. And <laughs> I really believe that. I mean, it's so cheesy. And it's so, and I really believe that it's true. You know, we've had a tough time in the Middle East over the last 10 years. And if it's taught us anything, it's taught us fidelity, you know our fidelity but also God's fidelity to us in what seemed to be impossible circumstances. You
2: mentioned that um you know you, you told your husband welcome to the monastery of of the real world or of to life. What what were some things that uh, you both learned from the monastery that uh, you found useful in marriage and family life that uh, that other people who haven't spent time in a monastery could learn.
3: Well, the biggest um The biggest thing about uh, this monastery was this this monastery was very influenced by the story of Abraham and the angels and Abraham welcoming the angels into his tent. And there's this belief in the Middle East that you should always welcome a guest because you never know if that guest is an angel. Hmm. So Hmm. I think that it really taught us that everyone is sent by God whether it's a stranger or whether it's a friend that's not easy to get along with one of your kid's friends that you're like, really you had to choose that person. Yeah. But Really to, to have trust in that has been huge. And the other thing, my, my husband has a great moment when my first son was born, Joseph, um, who was born in Bethlehem. Um, I remember waking up at like three in the morning and seeing Frederic, rocking him to sleep and he looked at me with a smile and he said when I was a monk I always tried to make up wake up in the middle of the night to pray and I always failed and he's like I guess it took having a baby (laughs) (laughs) oh man that's beautiful (laughs) And, and, and obedience the obedience that you take a vow of in the monastery I mean aren't we trying to be obedient to our children to whatever Whoever cries at two in the morning. I mean, in the Middle East, especially, there's this idea that the resurrection is always here. And so Sundays are very special. You're supposed to live it in a very real, concrete way. And I think in our families, we have to think like we're not waiting for paradise. Like paradise is here with our kid who takes her first steps, Mm -hmm or scores a goal, or, you know, just says, I love you, strangely, where you're not expecting it. I mean, I think it's all here. And the monastery taught me that, you know, the the abbot, he said, I'm proud to say that you studied in the school of the monastery. I think that's true. And Stephanie, you, you live in an area
1: right now where Israeli and Palestinian Jerusalem run right into each other. Why did you decide to raise your family there?
3: Well, I didn't decide to raise my family here. We moved here in 2006. We were going to move to Lebanon, and when we were on the way to Lebanon, a war broke out, and so we moved to Jerusalem instead, and we thought we would stay for one year or two years, and now it's been 12 years, so we never expected to stay here this long. And... We live here because I think this is where our vocation is. I mean, I speak Arabic. I work with refugees. I've taught in universities here. And Frederick is is, um, in training to be a married priest in the Syrian Catholic Church. So this is where our our life is. And so it was just about trying to say yes to life every day. And it kept us here. I I don't want to pretend to know what I'm doing as a parent because I don't. You know, I think we're all trying to figure it out. But I do think that there can be a temptation to protect our children. And I want to protect my children, but I also want them to be of service when they grow up. And I think that they can only be of service if they're exposed to the world as it is. What kind
2: of lessons do you think your kids are learning?
3: They have no concept of stranger like here everybody there's sort of a communal raising it's there's a new family living next to us this year and her first facebook post was well we're here and the neighbor's three-year-old just walked into our back door <laughs> <laughs> so they have a very communal sense of family and they have a sense of a spiritual life which is lived in life. This is the Middle East. Like, you don't live your religious life on Sunday. Like, it's part of your life. Everybody knows what everybody's faith is. You can talk about your faith very openly. I think they know about refugees, certainly. that my, my son asked me earlier about some refugees I know. He's he's 10. He said, why can't they just come live with us? Mm-hmm. And that was very, very touching to me. And they know about generosity. Uh, our favorite story about when my son was growing up was here people give presents to kids all the time. And so my son Joseph came home one day and his stroller was like full of wooden camels and candy and all kinds of things. And right when we arrived home, the guy in front of the door tried to give him something else. And my husband Frederick said, Can you please stop? He's going to be spoiled. And the man turned to him very seriously, and he said, this is between me and your son. And we were a little bit shocked, so we went inside. Later on, my husband returned to him and said, what was that about? And he said, listen, here we give to children freely so that they'll grow up thinking that giving is the most natural thing in the world. This is how we teach our children generosity and i think about that my son recently we gave him money for a market at school and he came home just with a tinkerbell dress for his little sister uh-huh. and i thought we didn't we didn't do that that was not us that was the school of the middle east that taught him how to be like that i can't take any credit for that
0: in addition to being a place of welcome and generosity i think a lot of people in the us when they Middle East think of conflict and displacement, which you've also written a lot about. Does the Syria that you met your husband, does that exist anymore?
3: Sure. The abbot of the monastery at Der Marmusa, where my husband was and where I later was, his name was was Father Paolo de L'Olio, a Jesuit who went into the ruins of this monastery and he rebuilt it. And he was like, he was a second father to me. When my father died, he said to me, he said, I would never want to take your father's place, but I hope that I could be a father to you. And he was kidnapped by the Islamic State in 2013. And our other friend, Jacques Murad, who was also from our community, that community was kidnapped by the Islamic State. And he was imprisoned for many months. And thankfully he escaped. And Franz van der Lut, who we also knew, the famous Jesuit and Holmes who gave his life and who was killed. So our world has been full of intimately knowing tragedy. That's just a fact. The Syria that I knew is eternal. I will never say that it doesn't exist. It exists in the hearts of all those who lived there and who have carried it with them all over the world. but. Most of the people we know are in exile, and and I visit people in my work all over the world. So yes, this is where we are, and this is where our faith finds its meaning. That challenge of believing in resurrection, I think in the Middle East, we live that every day.
2: Do we know anything about Father Paolo's whereabouts right now?
3: No, he was. He disappeared in 2013, and that's the last anyone heard about him. So that's been a real challenge for us. I would say, as a Catholic writer, I think before the war, I would have never wanted to call myself a Catholic writer. You know, I would say, you know, what is this? I don't want to be put into a category. And then when the war in Syria started, we had this crazy thing happen. We had Father Paolo disappear. We had Franz van der Lute get killed. We had Father Jacques be kidnapped. We had the bishops who disappeared. And then at the same time, we had all of these journalists who were getting kidnapped and killed. You know, we had Anthony Shadid, who died when he was in Syria. James Foley, an incredible person who was killed. We had the Syrian Basil Shahade, who was a filmmaker. And suddenly, I thought, wow. People who are writers are giving their lives. And people who are Christians are giving their lives. And to call yourself a Catholic writer here is to try to live up somehow, to to bear witness to an incredible generation of people who offered themselves, offered their lives in this war. So I feel like it's just such an honor to be able to hold the, both of those identities inside of myself right now in this place.
2: As a Catholic writer what in the Middle East, what are the stories that you like to tell?
3: Pope Francis, he recently talked about, well, he wrote about how when we receive the stranger, forget his words exactly, but he said we shouldn't see this, when we receive refugees, we shouldn't see this as, as charity but as a, a page of Christology. And what I try to do is to make people understand or, or touch what I've touched, which is that when you meet refugees or the poor or those who are suffering, we meet Christ. And that this is not a metaphor, that when Christ says, you know, it, it, when you visited the sick or the poor or the naked, you, you met me that this is not a metaphor, that maybe this is actually true, that when we meet these people, we have a real experience of Christ. I think of Jesus and the Holy Family as refugees fleeing to, to Egypt. And if I'm in a camp, I'm so overwhelmed with emotion about having the ability to meet people who have carried so much And who still have so much kindness and such compassion. People often say about my work that I try to humanize refugees, for example. That's a lie. Refugees are human enough.
1: And Stephanie, you founded Mosaic Stories, which is this project where you tell a lot of these stories that you encounter in the Middle East. Can you tell us why you decided to create this project?
3: I started this project and and now I'm, I'm working on a book based on this project with stories of refugees from around the region. Because in 2014, when the Islamic State took over vast areas of Syria and Iraq, the newspaper was just full of stories about Palmyra and Crafty Chevalier, and everybody was so horrified by the archaeology that was being destroyed. And... I knew that there were soap makers and textile workers and artists and musicians and all this intangible heritage that was being lost. So I wanted to talk about that heritage and that's how it started. And so I went searching for these people all over the world, 10 countries now. But in the process, I became less interested in that and more interested in every human story. I realized that every person has a story. To tell, and sometimes if somebody is forced to leave their home, and they've lost their home, they've lost their country, they've lost everything. All they have left is their story, but that's a lot. There were two pharmacists from Aleppo, Adnan and Gadir. When they got married, Adnan he turned to Gadir. They got a lot of money for their wedding, so they bought this beautiful, beautiful pharmacy in the center of Aleppo. And he started working there. He had two assistants. She was teaching at the university. She had two sons. Everything was great. And then the war started and they went to work and they heard shooting and their pharmacy was gone. So they didn't know what to do. Relatives started leaving and one of them left an empty house. So they stayed in this house and they didn't know what to do. And so they said, I think it was the basement or the garage. Let's turn it into a pharmacy. So they didn't have any money or supplies. And so all they could afford was to buy one of each thing. So they bought one of each thing and put it out on a table and people came to buy it. And when they ran out, they would have to refill the supplies overnight. It was very dangerous, but they kept it up. But then one day they got together and they said, listen, let's be honest with one another. There are real pharmacies in this city. And all we have is a pharmacy with one of each thing. How can we possibly compete? So they came up with a plan. And their plan was that they were going to be really nice to everybody, (laughs) that they were going to learn everybody's names and learn their children's names. And during the week, they would call them to check up on them to see if they were feeling better. So they started doing it. The men went to Adnan. The women went to Gadir. Slowly they started checking on people, listening to them, and in the middle of the war they realized that people were walking in the war long distances to come to their pharmacy with one thing in it. And she told me they didn't need medicine, they needed compassion. They needed somebody to tell who could tell, who, to whom they could tell, "I'm tired." The medicine of compassion that they gave saw this neighborhood through the war. That's a story. Yeah.
2: yeah, Stephanie, thank you so much for sharing that story and all of your stories with us today. We have one final question we ask all our guests. If you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or not, who would it be and why?
3: Wow. Well, this is going to sound really silly, and this is a little girl talking about her dad. but. My dad was the president of Catholic Charities in San Antonio, where he founded the largest refugee program for refugees who didn't have family. My dad, he grew up wanting to be Superman. And so without us knowing it, when we were growing up and older, he was finding out about refugees all over the world. And... Finding ways to bring them to America, and like Clark Kent, he went to work in a suit. But unbeknownst to us, he was he was saving people. And then at night, when I had nightmares, he would come to my bed night, bedside, and he would tell me about beautiful things, and he would save me too. So. The person who's been holiness to me was my father.
2: What was your dad's name?
3: His name was Stephen Saldana.
2: All right, so St. Stephen. All right. Stephanie, thank you so much. Where can people find your work?
3: Well, my books are A Country Between, which is about Jerusalem, and The Bread of Angels, which is about Syria. And you can find my work on refugees and articles that have come out in the New York Times, Vatican Radio, and also on my website, www.mosaicstories.org.
0: All right, now it's time for some announcements. And we have a pretty big one this week.
1: We're very (laughs) excited
0: to share this with you guys. Jesuitical is going to Australia.
2: Yeah, so this is... Super awesome! Mm-hmm. Uh, I've never been one. I don't think any of us have. Ever been nope. There. Nope. Uh, so we will be participating with the Archdiocese of Adelaide in their World Youth Day celebrations, mm-hmm. and so we're going to be there this January, January twenty fifth through the twenty seventh. At we're Sacred be,
0: Heart College. Yeah, we'll be
2: we'll be doing a live show, uh, theology on tap, some workshops.
0: I heard talk of like a of a Jesuit winery.
2: Yeah, we're like going on a <laughs> pilgrimage to a winery. In other words, we're going there to drink Basically. and talk about God and podcasting. Very on brand. Yes. <laughs> (laughs) So you can find out more information about that. We're posting it on our social media feeds and we'll be sure to keep you guys posted as that gets closer and closer.
0: And if you're going to be in Adelaide during World Youth Day, you can buy tickets for all the events at www.cathyouthadelaide.org.au slash WYD.
2: So maybe you're one of our Australian listeners and you want to show up to our events in some Jesuitical swag. You can get more of that. You can also get it if you're, you know not an Australian listener, if you're any listener, you can find that Jesuitical t-shirts, stickers, all kinds of stuff, and other great Jesuit swag in general, available for purchase online at www.jesuitswag.com Jesuitical. And you can also get one of these t-shirts if you're a donor on Patreon.
0: Yes, so patreon.com slash Media is where you can become a patron of the show, which makes everything we do here possible, and we're so grateful to everyone who has already given. And we have two new patrons that we want to give a shout-out to this week at the VIP level. That's Emily Eubanks and Charles Conlin. Thank you guys so much for giving. All right, now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. I'll go first. I have a kind of consolation. I guess it is a consolation. So I talked last week about how I was having some trouble like praying about the current sex abuse crisis, and I'm still not really doing that. But I have found my way back to how I first (laughs) fell in love with Catholicism in college, which was through literature. Last week, I picked up Brideshead Revisited by the Catholic author Evelyn Waugh, and I just like devoured it. And its I hadn't just like loved to piece of fiction that much in a very long time. And it's a very Catholic novel. And I just found myself consoled by the fact that even when like it's hard for me to find God in prayer at this moment, and it's hard for me to find God in the church and its leaders in this moment, I can still find it in art and Catholic artists. This is a story about Catholic aristocrats in Great Britain during World War II. And it's a tragic love story, but it's also deeply Catholic. And I've been finding great
1: consolation in reading that over the past week and would recommend it to anyone (laughs) what do you have Olga so I've I've got a consolation this week. I've been feeling really lost vocation wise, and Zach got into this in a desolation a while back. Like it's been really difficult to be a writer in Catholic media and kind of just a writer in general. I've been dealing with a lot of professional rejection, which is of course a part of the field that we're in. But it's been really difficult to kind of just check your inbox and see that you've worked hard on this thing, and another editor, another publication has rejected it. And it's been really difficult for me to move away from that. And it's just been really really draining because it. It's making me question a field that I'm extremely passionate about, that, I'm, that I love. I'm falling into those dark thoughts where I'm like, oh, it's because you suck. It's because you're not good at this. And it's just been really desolate to kind of just be in that mindset for like the past week and a half, you know? Yeah. And of course, everyone who works with you knows that's definitely not true.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> you do belong here, but I, I understand that. And I really respect you for putting yourself out there. My response to like rejection is just <laughs> not right. <laughs> so keep doing it. The world needs your voice. Thank you, Ashley.
2: What do you have, Zach? So I've got a consolation this week. Wedding planning is moving forward at a what seems to be a rapid pace, <laughs> or it feels like it anyway. And... Amanda right now has this is my fiance. It has a lot more free time right now in order to sort of do some of the the heavy lifting, like the sending the emails, sending the inquiries, scouring reviews of spaces and photographers and all these things. And I was starting to feel like this was all sort of happening like around me and not with me. And that I don't doesn't feel good. I mean, maybe there are some men who are terrible, and that does feel good for them. But I really wanted to be a part of this and and I, and I am. but, I was listening to this evil spirit saying, You're not a part of this. Amanda's trying to do all this without you. You should you should confront her about it. You should you should definitely confront her about it. <laughs> and so that will go well. I'm yeah, sure. right, of course. <laughs> and so I listened to the evil spirit and I of course brought it up in a very not so great way, in a very confrontational way that was based in fear and not transparency or concern. But the consolation is, is that even in spite of that, just sort of bringing it out of myself and into our relationship, she is a better person than I am. And so she was able to like steer it from that into this really like good area of communication where we're talking about things and reminding me that this is going to be a great marriage. And so that was my consolation this week. Thank you to Amanda for making me a better person. That's what I got. Unsurprising. Uh, Yes, no one is surprised (laughs) by any step in that process.
0: (laughs) Jesuitical is brought to you by American Media and produced by Eloise Blondio. Our editor this week is Caitlin Pierce. Adverbs provided by Mark Perry. Jesuit Formation provided by Eric Sundrup SJ. Engineering by Emma Winters. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Shout out this week to no one. We got no new reviews, but we just need one more to get to 200, which would be very exciting. So please go onto iTunes and leave us a review. And send us your questions, feedback, cocktail recipes, and tell us where you found God this week at Jesuitical at americamedia.org. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Olga Segura and Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.